0: Welcome to After Hours at the Radio Book Club, which is a podcast collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. We're live at the Boulder Bookstore with Peter Heller, his fifth visit to the Book Club, and uh, we have been talking about his latest novel, The Last Ranger. In the podcast now, we're gonna be taking audience questions, and they have written them down, so I'm gonna just dive right in, because we've got quite a lot. Okay, so this is actually related to previous book. In the river, you dramatically describe the characters being overrun by a fire in the boreal forest. Very, you know, prescient. Did you ever experience <laughs> fire like that?
1: Yeah, um, in 94, do you remember, I think it was July 4th weekend, um, you remember the big fire that was just west of Glenwood Springs, the Storm King fire? Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> Had allergies ever since. <laughs> so The storm, man, I hope I don't lose my voice. That would be really weird. I was just ran the gates of Lador up on the Green River, and there was some sort of rabbit brush or something going off, and I got really allergic, which has never happened. So uh, July 4th weekend, um, 1994, I th- think it was July 4th weekend, uh, after really bad drought uh, and a lot of heat, um, I was in Paonia, which is just over Grand Mesa, from the Colorado River Valley, and the very same weekend that the 12 firefighters lost their lives on the Storm King fire, we had the same conditions over in the North Fork, and I was working on an e- epic poem, I'm <coughs> sorry radio audience, <coughs> I was working on an epic poem, and I was in my house, and I went outside to get a drink of water. Good idea. <laughs> and uh, I noticed a column of smoke down the valley, and I thought, that's Chuck and Jane's house. And I, re- I threw a chainsaw on the truck and drove down there. And it, it was a lightning strike, and it kind of blew up. There was a, fire, a volunteer fire truck there with six guys and a handful of us shuttling art and cats and dogs into vehicles and uh, we were all sort of uh, putting out sparks in the duff with shovels and stuff and um, the wind blew up and i remember there was this wall of flame and (coughs) excuse me i heard trees exploding and uh the firemen said we're gonna we're out of here and they cut their hoses and got in their truck And we all um, jumped into vehicles and went down this really rocky Rough dirt track, and I had Claudette, C L A W D, uh, the cat, doing laps in this <laughs> cab of this pickup truck. We went through sparks and then smoke and then flames. We got to the bottom of the hill where there's a big irrigation canal where all the emergency vehicles were. I looked back, and 90 seconds later, the entire slope was taken by fire. And I realized that we had come that close to just uh, being, you know. Uh, having the fate of those guys on the other side of the hill, which we found about out about that night, uh, I think it made a deep impression on me. And I think in fiction, uh, somehow, uh, in this process of just sort of stumbling into the things I'm concerned about, I think uh, I often write about what has traumatized me. And I think I was traumatized that day, probably. Uh, so,
0: is it re-traumatizing when you see? Other fires because it's happening constantly. Of course, Hawaii. You know, when you're a surfer, what's happened on Maui? But how many uh, more Canada, fires yeah, have we it's had? Just,
1: I don't know. And now you know, here you hear about them in Indonesia, and you hear about them in Australia, and uh, in you know, in Europe. And um, you just have to wonder if you know we're all going up in flames. It's really, it's, it's terrifying. Yeah,
2: I, I heard today that there's a thousand active wildfires in Canada right now. It's just
1: unbelievable. Is the smoke that we're seeing in Boulder right now, is that from those fires? Or is that, know. is it, is, is it? it? No. Yeah. Yeah. yeah? So I think that may be what's getting my throat.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, then you have the Marshall Fire here, the fires in Maui. Like, it's, it's incredible how fast fire can move. You know, and, and I think you did a good job in the river of really showing that in a kind of an amazing, visceral way. Um, right. But you, you see it all the time now in the news. Yep, yep. All right, your style is often compared with Cormac McCarthy. Oh boy. Rest in peace. Maybe due to the post-apocalyptic The Dog Stars, but your writing reminds me more of Hemingway. Was he an influence? So when I was 11,
1: I I I wanted to be a poet when I was a little kid. My dad read to me every night before I went to sleep, and he read E.E. Cummings to me when I was like six, uh, which is kind of grounds for social services in a way. (laughs) Uh, because they're so bawdy, you know. I mean, I didn't understand them, you know. Uh, uh, thank goodness. But I love the sound of it. I wanted to be a poet. When I was 11, I was walking around my little library, my little school in New York City, where I grew up, and uh, the librarian was named Annie Bosworth, and I had a crush on her. Uh, she was English, and I would have married her that day just for how she said my name. She said, "Pita, are you looking for something to read? And I was like, Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. She took me over to the fiction shelf and she pulled down a slim little volume of short stories called In Our Time by this guy, Ernest Hemingway. And they were mostly Nick Adams stories up in Upper Michigan. You gotta picture a kid who loved, I already loved the outdoors. I mean, I spent summers outside. Um, Taking this home in New York City and, you know, I cracked the book and my heart just sort of leapt out of my chest and I thought, I want to do that. I want to... Hop off a slow-moving spray train in Upper Michigan with a rucksack, and walk through grass that wet my pant legs with dew. I want to make a fire by the Big Two Hearted River and make cowboy coffee, whatever the hell that is, and uh, and not burn my tongue the way Nick didn't burn his tongue. And I want to have a girlfriend. I want to fish for those gorgeous trout. I want to have a girlfriend, like in the end of something, that beautiful breakup story that could row and fish like a man. How cool is that, right? And then break up with her, because Nick did. Uh, uh, and But mostly what I wanted to do was write like that. Not like him, but with the same power, because it was my first experience of prose that went straight through my skin, straight to my heart. That feeling we've all had when we read somebody we really love. And it changed me. I mean, it sort of bypassed my head, and I thought, you know, I want, I want to do that. And so, you know, I, I read Hemingway and um, later decided he was kind of a jerk. Uh, but, but his style was so, you know, it's so infectious that I couldn't read him for like decades because, uh, you know, you end up writing like him, and whoops, (laughs) if I write like him now, it's because I couldn't get free. I read Proust, I read Faulkner, I read everybody who ran on and on, you know, like 10 uh, dependent clauses in a sentence, uh, as opposed to Hemingway's, you know, short, uh, but anyway no he was a huge influence and so Cormac McCarthy was too i just love Cormac McCarthy because he's uh, he get he come people say he's you know sort of curt but actually he's really lyrical and my favorite favorite uh, fiction writers are the most lyrical ones you know joseph conrad i love just because of the flow of the music of the language
0: that flows perfectly to this question. As a composer of symphonic music, I find your writing to be full of economy of phrasing. Is this the, hang on, is this the poet in you? Or are you simply a fan of Hemingway? <laughs> <laughs> ah, come on, come on, come
1: on. Uh, no, um, so I spent years and years in in a room um, writing poetry, and um, just being concerned with, you know, line breaks and um, how to distill uh, language as best I could. And um, so if there is economy, it's probably partly because, you know, I admired people like Hemingway and, and Cormac McCarthy, but also uh, because I really, really love the distillation of, of and the power that that, that that carries in poetry, I think, you know, some of my favorite poets are the Tang Dynasty Chinese poets. You guys probably know that. But um, these guys were writing in the 8th and ninth century in China. And in a few very simple lines, they can place you like knee deep in a mountain creek with sh- the, the, the mist shredding in the pines, and then break your heart in five lines. You know, they're sort of the blues men of, the, of ancient China. and aficionados of loss and i just love how distilled that kind of poetry can be and so i aspire
2: So we have another related question to some extent no mention of hemingway but i will say on a personal note having read all your fiction and interviewed you for five of the books i'm really happy that as much as i love faulkner that i don't have to get through the equivalent of as i lay dying every time we <laughs> <laughs> talk to you <laughs> That would be a little intimidating. <laughs> so, um, when did you know you were a writer? And who are the people who supported your journey?
1: Yeah, so dad, my dad was a writer. He was a brilliant writer. So, uh, this is a podcast, can I say this? I yes. Don't know. All right. So dad was a master limericist. Like, listen to this. Pierre of, you gotta pronounce Con Can, okay? So here we go. Pierre of Vintner of Con was a most imaginative man. He sprinkled his cock with vintage madoc as his wife shouted, ooh, cock of Vin. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the man is brilliant. And uh, <laughs> the best, he was the best occasional poet that I ever knew, and uh, very funny. And um, he, just distil- he just instilled in me you know, the love of language. And I mean, he would read Joseph Conrad to me when I was like 10. Uh, just because he loved lines like, you know, an implacable force brooding over an uh, in, in, inscrutable intention. That was the forest looking over the river. You know, he, he read that stuff to me when I was little, and I just fell in love with it. And uh, what were his favorites? Do you guys remember Don Marquis, um, Archie and Mehitable, The Poems by the Cockroach? You know, he would read those to me when I was little. That's worth looking up, by the way. Uh, all sorts of poetry, Yeats, uh, prayer for my daughter, he probably read to me when I was like 11. I've walked and prayed for this young child an hour and heard the sea wind scream upon the tower and under the arches of the bridge and scream in the elms above the flooded stream. I mean, how could anything be more beautiful? And I, I just, felt, and then I'd be writing and he'd look over my shoulder at a story I was writing, you know, when I was little and he would say, "Hey." You know, maybe balance the long sentences with the short sentences. And you know, get a get a little bit of a cadence going. And you know, he taught me a lot. Plus he was a, a, a campfire and dinner table storyteller uh, and raconteur par excellence. And you learn a lot listening to people like that.
0: I think we need a, a book of limericks from Peter yeah. Heller. <laughs> well, another writing question from Nick. What sort of writing schedule do you keep?
1: so i write when i'm on a novel i write a thousand words every day seven days a week and um i i sort of got that from graham green uh i read that he wrote 500 words every day of his life which you know, i take a break between books but uh you know on his friend's yacht in the mediterranean at the ravels hotel in singapore and in you know in london he wrote 500 words, and he was so meticulous about it that he kept a subtotal in the margin. When he hit word 500, in the middle of dialogue, in the middle of a love scene, he stopped. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I thought about that. What is, what is he doing? And I thought, if you stick to the arbitrary number, you're always stopping in the middle. And I don't do that, and none of my author friends do that. We all have our quota, a couple, however many hours or words, but if we get excited, we blow through it write three times as much, finish the scene, go, ha, huh, that was great, go on with our day. But if you think about it, that's always a transition. That's white space, double return. You're always coming back to white space in the morning. And you might as well start the book every day, get that momentum going. And I thought, I, I'm going to try what Graham Greene did. How, and I knew from journalism I could write, say, a thousand words every day with energy. So I'm going to do that. I'm never going to write less, but I'm going to go just past it until I'm in the middle of a scene that excites me. and and it works i mean it might be 1070 words but i'm in the middle and then i cannot wait to jump out of bed and keep going and plus if i had written 3000 words you know by by saving it and writing it the next day i garner all this energy you know writing a novel is a marathon and and it's like a battery you store all that energy that you could have expended also, it's gonna be better because you slept on it and you do so much work in your sleep you know you guys know that you know your unconscious does so much um, and I I'm a I just I just love the idea that we work in our sleep <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do it as much as I can <laughs>
2: did, did, not, not to come back to Hemingway but did Hemingway do something similar because I remember I toured his house in Key West and that was that's something to see if you're ever down that way to to do the hemingway house down there and there's still the descendants of his cats living on the property but one of the things they said at the house was he would he would you know get up he would write his certain amount of words i can't remember what the amount was and then he'd like you know then he'd go out drinking and partying and you know whatever but he would stop when he got to that amount because he wanted to go drinking like he just wanted to be done you know for the day
1: but I also heard that he would always put a few lines for the next morning, uh, so he always had something to go back to, which is yeah. smart. I mean, he, 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 he was not dumb, that no. guy.
2: <laughs> Okay, oh, we're going to change topic here. We're going to go to fishing. How do you feel about fishery management, maintenance of trout species in Colorado streams, non-native species being introduced to high mountains, oh, turn over, lakes? when if you catch a northern pike highly invasive do you return it to the stream or tor- toss it to the wolves eric oh man do we have to talk about this
1: <laughs> we can uh i, I mean i i love catching native species and and giving it a pat on the head and go you go you know breed <laughs> thanks i love it i love it and uh you know in um you know in a lot of places like yellowstone uh if you catch a non-native fish like a rainbow uh you're supposed to kill it and uh i've been fly fishing so long and and i'm not a great fly fisher but i just but i just love it uh i won't i'm not gonna you know i mean here we are you know in front of god and the law and everything else i'm not going to tell you what i do when i catch a rainbow trout uh I don't know. You know what, I'm gonna finesse that answer by just saying that my wife is my first reader. I read chunks aloud, she's here tonight, Kim, and she's an impeccable editor, and she'll be at the end of the couch, and she'll start nodding off, and she'll go, too much fishing.
2: (laughs) And then fall asleep. And she's always right. I'm from the East Coast, and they have a problem with lionfish in the water. And, oh my God! And they're, 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 it's constant hunting season. You can get, they have contests on who can kill the most lionfish, and it's but it doesn't seem like you can you can't. I kind of wonder about the whole thing. It's like I guess maybe you're trying to keep them in check because you're never gonna kill them all. It's like once the genie's out of the bottle, there's not enough fly
1: fishing people or whatever you know in these places to make a dent. But it, you know if I catch a pike. He's going to meet his maker (laughs) for sure.
0: (laughs) Well, another fishing question. How often do you go fishing? Not enough. I think that's a pretty standard answer for fisher people.
2: What do you like to read? What makes a good story? So I love authors that
1: uh, take big risks and sometimes fail, and uh, I love Murakami. You know the Japanese novelist. I just love him. I didn't love One Q 84 Four, but he took a lot of risks in that book, and I, and I appreciated that. Uh, I love Cormac McCarthy for the same reason. I read, you know, I read The Passenger, I read Stella Maris. Uh, I didn't love them the way I love the other ones, but what I loved was that he was willing to go there and take these risks, and that maybe he fell down and I'm so sad that he didn't live uh, longer so that he could you know try again um, I appreciate any artist that uh, is willing to take take big risks um, <clears throat> I, lo- I love uh, James McBride lately uh, I thought Deacon King Kong was one of the greatest novels <laughs> I've read in a decade um, yeah I'm in a, I mean I'm eclectic I, I sort of read everybody. Uh, have you read McBride's latest? I'm reading it now. OK, good. Yeah, I, lo- I, I, I kind of love it.
0: Yeah. OK, another shout out to a previous book of yours. When will we see another book about Celine?
1: Oh, man, I was at a book festival, and um, <clears throat> this woman came up to me and like literally grabbed my collar and pushed me against the wall and said, you're going to write another Celine book, because we have to know about the daughter. And I was like, uh, you know, I had to agree <laughs> right there. Just <laughs> self-preservation. But, um, but so, you know, what I do, like when I start a book, you know, I just close my, I go to, I go to the coffee shop, I sit down, I close my eyes, and I, th- I say to myself, just don't think, don't think, just listen. And um, I never know, you know, sort of what I'm going to hear. And if you know, Celine starts talking again, it'll be so great to see her. You know, I mean, I wrote Celine because my mom had died uh, a few months before, and uh, I started, you know, the way I started, I started with the first line. It was something like, "My mother's name is <coughs> Amana Ambrosio." <coughs> Amana in, in Tupi Guarani, Amana means night rain. And I just loved the sound of that. And it was the story of this young woman and her life as a child. And then uh, that was interesting. But then within a few pages, she she, she needed a private eye to search for her father. And she went to this woman who was my mom. My mom was a private eye. And I realized right then, within a few pages, that what I really wanted to do was hang out with my mother for a few more months, you know, because I missed her so terribly. And so, uh, you know, if, if my mother basically shows up again, uh, you know, I'll be so
2: happy to see her. You know, um, you, you, you write such vivid characters, and you, you have such great settings, so... We always get these questions, you know, when are you going to write another Celine, the owner of the bookstore, the only question he wants me to ask is when are you going to write the sequel to Dog Stars? What do you like? People want to revisit these worlds that you've created.
1: Yeah. You know, when I finished the Dog Stars, I mean, it was my first novel, right? I, uh, you know, had been in the coffee shop and I, you know just, Hig was telling me what had happened to him a few years before, and I would just go in and it was like he was on the other side of a campfire on an October night with the wind blowing the flames around, he was telling me what had happened to him, and it was like the most thrilling thing I'd ever experienced in my life, ever, of all the adventures I've done and, you know, rivers, and 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 when I finished, uh, and, and I would be in the coffee shop and I would just, I'd have, you know, something would happen, I'd have tears dripping off my chin onto the table. And I know people in there were thinking, that poor son of a bitch is just, you know, he's going through a bad divorce uh, or, you know, but what was really happening was that I was so thrilled and transported and I finished it and I didn't, I just loved Hig, I loved Sema. I loved the setting and I didn't want to leave it. And I, 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 think, I, I think I read it over like eight times you know, and not because I was being narcissistic, but because I didn't want to leave the, the characters in the place, you know, it was my first experience of being completely immersed in a, in a fictional world uh, that I had created, and, um, and so I get it, you know. I, I mean, I would love to go back there, uh, but it really, you know, I just have to, I have to let it happen. It unfolds as it unfolds and, um, you know, just give thanks that it does.
0: Anybody else here think of Dog Stars in the early days of COVID? Yeah, yeah see? <laughs> yeah. Mm. Also pushing the button and everybody
1: away. Oh, mm. <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> <laughs> that again. <laughs> okay.
0: Well, Joyce asks Just finished reading The River. Great read. The book club loved it. Have you done Outward Bound courses or other survivalist type classes? So uh,
1: I I was living in New York City, right? I'm 15, I begged my parents to send me to Vermont to boarding school, because I had a lot of uh, cousins um, in Southern Vermont and an uncle. And um, so I went to where they all went to school. And uh, I was 15 and for a spring project when everyone else was like making jewelry, uh, I went into the woods for a week with no food and no tent (laughs) And guess what? It was Vermont and it was early May and it rained the entire time and it was 40 degrees. And I went in at 129 pounds uh, and I came out 13 pounds less. (laughs) When I got back, I ate three bowls of Frosted Flakes, first thing, Uh, but I I wanted, you know, I just wanted that. from an early age, and um, so yes, I, I yeah, I mean I spent I've spent a lot of time doing similarly dumb things <laughs> in the outdoors. <laughs> do you watch
0: that TV show alone?
1: No, but I heard oh, about yeah, it. I just that. think that sounds that sounds incredible. I'm gonna have
2: to watch it. to watch it. Yeah, yeah. It's all about fat. Yes, and yeah. protein. Yeah, <laughs> getting your food. Do you still go surfing? And if so, where do you go? But don't feel obligated to share your secret spots
1: right so uh yeah so um surfing is now my favorite thing on earth i love it ever since we we went on in 2007 kim and i i I invited her on this trip for on our like fifth date uh to come in a van again down the coast of mexico and learn to surf and uh, i wrote that book kook and um You know it's sort of surfing sort of you know it sort of embodies for me or it it distills everything that I love on earth you know which is like being in in the grips of something much more you know violent whitewater being in the grips of that um, being carried by that the time of day you go out you know at very first light the closeness to um, the other animals that are sharing it. Um, the turtle who pops her head up and the frigate birds that are circling and the boobies that are diving and the pelicans that come by just right next to you with their, with their, their wings just a millimeter off the water. Um, it's just so intoxicating. And then if you actually catch a wave and ride it, it's like, wow, that's cool. Uh, I, I really love to surf. So yes, um, we go to Mexico you know, a few months a year and, and surf. And it's great because I discovered that you can surf early in the morning and come back and you're relaxed and you're energized at the same time. It's a, it's perfect for um, working, which is cool.
0: Oh, are you still writing for outside magazine?
1: No, I've been I've been writing um lately for Connie Nast Traveler. We just we just got back from a trip to the Marquesas doing that. Um, I have an assignment for modern huntsman <laughs> in a couple of weeks to go up to Hudson Bay and and look at those wolves again. It's fly fishing with polar bears, but it's really just because I love being there.
2: What impact has Dartmouth, where you went to undergraduate, had on your development as a writer? Um,
1: Dartmouth was cool because I just read, I read everything. Uh, And I had, I took a lot of French literature and I I read a lot of the French. I was an English major and a comp lit major, Uh, so I read and read and read, and then I was smart. I thought, you know, if you're going to write about nature, which I think, you know, I thought I was going to, you better know the difference between a spruce and a pine. Uh, And so I took botany, and I I had almost a full biology major. I thought I'd better come out with some actual hard knowledge. And so um, it was very, very helpful, like hugely helpful. And I had some wonderful professors, the Shakespeare professor, and you know, were, were, they're were brilliant.
0: Is that where you were introduced to the Chinese poets from? That you...
1: No, the Chinese poets I just sort of stumbled onto. I think I was reading uh, W. S. Merwin, and he had translated a bunch of those Tang Dynasty. Po- I loved Merwin, and he translated a bunch of the Tang Dynasty poets. So I started looking them up, and I was um, pretty much blown away. Okay. Yeah.
0: Well, I got my last question yep. here on it. Uh, quote i think from yourself i never plot never had an idea i'm more concerned by the music and sound of it can you please expand on that statement the music and meter and tempo of the words
1: yeah so i mean i just spent years and years you know in uh, in a room you know writing poetry which will you know you guys will never see because i don't know that it was that that great uh but um but it was that attention to you know how language can flow, and, and, and how the sound of language can enjoin with imagery to create power. And uh, I just love that. I love that interplay of, of imagery and, sound, and music. And um, I'll spend the rest of my life exploring
2: the possibilities of, those, of that.
1: Okay.
2: I have two questions left, but they're the same question, basically. Who is your inspiration when you write from the female perspective is one. And so you'll tell me if it's the same as the second question. Who is your feminine muse?
1: Man, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'd be lying if I said <laughs> somebody because uh, all my characters are sort of amalgams of, of people that I've met and encountered in some way. Um, and you know some partly completely fictionalized, but a lot, a lot of my characters are sort of rep, sort of iterations or avatars or um, some similar um, person to you know people that I know. And uh, I, I know a lot of um, really really powerful women, like for instance my mom, who was a crack investigator. She, she was a private eye who could drive and shoot when we opened up her little safe after she died she had eight handguns in there ankle holsters uh, speed loaders um, and and then we' come to find she was like certified combat pistol shooter she was a complete badass and uh, nothing scared her um, I mean she, I mean, sure, things did scare her, but she was also very courageous in her art. Like, her art was all about the underworld, and she was not as scared to go into these dark places with her sculpture. She was an artist, too. And so uh, my grandmother, you know, from that generation, who was born in 1900, was a phenomenal sculptor and very, very brave. And you know, so I have a lot of these um, strong women in my family, and I'm married to a very strong woman who's like, uh, impeccable at, um, uh, finding where, you know, the writing is, uh, works and where it doesn't and, you know, keeps things true. Um, Kim told me when I wrote The Dog Star, she said, you know, you have to make sure that the readers know that Sema had an orgasm or they're gonna think Higg hey, is really selfish. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did. <laughs> So all those women are all around me, thank God.
0: Well it's a perfect note to end on. Um, Peter Heller. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you. And thank you, Maeve, and okay. thank you, It's Wonderful. Thank you.